0: Luke chapter 10, verse 1 says, "...after these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before His face into every city and place, whither He Himself would come. Therefore said He unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that He would send forth laborers into His harvest." Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humbly bow before you this evening. We thank you for the great privilege we have to speak on a subject that is at the center of your heart. Lord Jesus, would you help us to think your thoughts. Lord, bring us into the uh, very intimacy of your thinking about global advance of the gospel, Lord. And Lord, I pray that something would take place this week that would be so real and so substantive that it will affect the harvest fields. Lord, I pray You would call young men and young ladies to surrender their lives this week to go to the mission field and to preach the Gospel to those who've never heard. Lord, I ask You to broaden our vision of how this church can be instrumental in changing things on foreign fields through prayer, even if they never visit those fields. Lord, I pray You would breathe faith into our hearts, Lord, that we would begin to trust You for more. Lord, help us to cast a vision similar to that which Jesus did. And uh, Lord, we just love You so much. We desire for You to receive the reward of Your suffering for what You died to do, Lord. So we ask tonight that You would speak to our hearts. Be with us, Lord. Let us know that we've met with You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There is a, a concept and it's a subtle concept, but uh, it goes something along these lines that in this 21st century, God doesn't quite know what to do with this generation, uh, the, the media savvy and the technology and uh, the political tension and all of the things going on in the world and, and, and almost, so we would never say it, but almost like God is aloof, Like he's in heaven he's got a blindfold on and he's just kind of stabbing around in the dark and just let's see if we can get something done in this 21st century because this is far worse than I ever could have imagined it. I never could have envisioned a culture like this, a generation of people like this. Now obviously we know that is absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing in the 21st century. Now, sometimes, from a human perspective, it doesn't seem that way. In fact, sometimes, from a human perspective, it seems like God doesn't really know what He's doing. Now, because we know that He does know what He's doing, the best thing for you and I to do is just to trust Him and do whatever He says, because blind obedience works just as well as seeing obedience. In other words, I trust that God knows what he's doing. He's really smart. Can I put it that way? He's brilliant. He's a genius, particularly as it concerns the Great Commission. But sometimes his methods and the things he might emphasize, I might not think that that's that big of a deal. But I need better to listen and think about what God is considering to be important uh, than, than what I would think. Now That's what this passage teaches here. Now, I want you to see that. The reason I want you to see that is because if you and I believe that God is aloof, that God doesn't necessarily know exactly what He's doing, but uh, He's just stabbing about, the church will adopt the same philosophy. They'll begin to think that, well, that's what we're doing in the 21st century. You know, we have no clue how to face this culture. We have no clue how to reach out to this this generation of people and to to deal with a a multiplicity of problems and complexities and, uh, you know, viruses and Uh, things uh, that that are upon us even in, in these days, and that the church is just kind of stabbing around in the dark and, you know, let's just see what we can do. But the Bible says that you and I need to be, as the sons of Issachar were, who had understanding of the times to know what they ought to do. I love that verse. And that verse to me applies so much in this generation, maybe more than ever before. They were men who had understanding of the times in which they lived. And based on that understanding, they knew the action that they should take. God says, that's the way I want you and I to be. God wants you and I to have an understanding of what's going on in this world and to act upon that. Now let's look at verse number 1, and we'll just walk our way through this uh, wonderful passage. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 says, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Now, Jesus was limited by two things. Number one, by time. We know his earthly ministry was just about three and a half years long. And secondly, he was limited by the same thing that limits you and me, a body. Jesus could only be in one place at any given moment. And so the Bible says because the the vision of Jesus and the desire of Jesus was to reach as many villages in Israel before he paid the debt for our sins... Jesus recruited 70 others, maybe in addition to the 12, or maybe that includes the 12, I'm not quite sure. But whatever the case may be, he sent them to the villages and the places that he wanted to go. Now, when you read that, you can see that there was some form of strategy in what the Lord did. Can you see that? I mean, on a simple basis... The Lord wasn't just stabbing around in the dark, he had a plan. He knew exactly what he was doing, and the more that you multiply those who go out as laborers, the more people are going to hear the gospel. And of course, our Lord wants all men to be saved, and so the more people that you can get out there, the more people who are actually planting, sowing the seeds of the gospel, more chances are that people will get saved. And I do think it's interesting, the Bible says that he appointed 70 also, the uh, the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 individuals. And the primary function of the Sanhedrin was to authenticate the true Messiah when he came. Now, of course, the Sanhedrin during this time had miserably failed. And so the Lord appointed 70 others also uh, to do that. You know, you and I had the same mission today. God has called you and me to authenticate the true Messiah. What a great privilege. Look at verse number 2 with me. The Bible says, therefore, he said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. So Jesus is dealing with this problem. There's a great harvest. There are people who would hear if only there was a laborer to go, as we just heard in the song that was sung. And uh, this is a big problem. And then Jesus told them to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, I want to answer a question that may seem insignificant, but I believe is very important. Who is the Lord of the harvest that Jesus is referencing here? That he is encouraging his disciples, and these 70, to pray to this Lord of the harvest. Well, the grammar itself would lead us to believe he's not speaking about himself because he uses third person pronoun. And that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, would it? Now, I'm going to go through some uh, Hebrew gymnastics here to prove to you who I think this is. And again, it's because I think it's important. If it wasn't important, I wouldn't spend the time to talk about it. Who the Lord of the harvest is. And the Bible says he, it is his harvest. That is, it belongs to him. It is something that he's in control of. The very word Lord in its most basic meaning is controller. This one is in charge. This one is the controller. This one is what we might call the captain on the ground. Now, let's back up a few hundred years or so. Back to the the exodus of the children of Israel. And uh, on the 10th day of the month of Abib, Abib became the first uh, month of the calendar year for the Israelites. The Lord instructed them on the 10th day they were to bring a lamb into their home. Now, if they, did not, they were not supposed to sacrifice the lamb on the 10th day. The lamb was supposed to stay in the home for four days. On the 14th, the Passover day, the lamb would be slain in the evening. The next harvest, or excuse me, the next feast that would take place from the Passover was a feast called Firstfruits. Now, the Feast of Firstfruits was a, a floating feast because it depended on the timing of the harvest. When the sickle was put to the wheat, that was the Feast of Firstfruits. From that point, seven Sabbaths were counted, and the day after would be another feast, the Feast of Harvest, what we know as the Feast of Pentecost. Fifty days from the Feast of Firstfruits would be the Pentecost, a harvest celebration. Now, with all that in your mind, hopefully, uh, let's zoom back up to the time of Christ. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on the 10th day of the month of Abib. The lamb was entering into the home. Are you with me? They did not crucify him on that day. In fact, Jesus was there four days, and on Thursday... He was crucified. The exact same time that the high priest saw the smoke ascending from the altar on that day of sacrifice, the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, Jesus was crying, it is finished in the evening of that Thursday on the cross. Now, it just so happened that year that the Feast of fruits came three days later. That's a great coincidence, isn't it? The day that Jesus rose from the grave on that Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits, and Jesus is the first fruits among many brethren. Hallelujah. Fifty days from that point, Jesus said, There's someone who is going to come and take my place. He's going to tell you everything you need to know, He'll bring everything to remembrance, He will guide you into truth. He is going to be the captain on the ground. Now, who is Jesus speaking about? Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit of God. When Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest, the controller of the harvest, the one who is in charge, it is his harvest. He was specifically referencing the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Now, why is that important? I think it's important for this reason. There is a great dynamic that comes in when you and I have someone, God, present with us, ministering along with us. Rather than us thinking about Jesus is up in heaven, we're down here on this earth. Let let me say it this way. Suppose there was a boy born when Jesus was uh, 25, 26 years of age. And when the boy started growing up, Four or five-year-old boy, six-year-old boy, his parents started telling him stories about Jesus. And one day the boy says, wow, this must be the most wonderful person ever to be born. I wish I could have met him. And his parents say, well, you can. He's 31. He's almost 32. And he was just in Capernaum yesterday, and he's still here. You can see him. Now, that would be an interesting dynamic, wouldn't it? Now, can we say the same thing today? Can we go see Jesus somewhere? No. Why? Well, because we know on a specific day Jesus came, and we know on a specific day he left, and those 33 years are past us now by almost 2,000 years. Let me ask you a question. Would it make a difference if Jesus, in your missions program, would it make a difference if Jesus physically attended this church? That proves my point exactly. Jesus said there's going to be someone who is going to be with you. He's going to guide you into all truth. And by the way, you read the book of Acts, and the Spirit of God is speaking to them and telling them what to do, telling them where to go. One of my favorite phrases in the book of Acts, after that great counselor in Jerusalem, when James folds his arms and says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You know what that means? They were getting the same emails. Are you with me? My point is this, God has not left us here on planet earth in the 21st century aloof, not knowing what to do. In fact, if you'd say, boy, I really wish we could meet the Holy Spirit, I would say to you, you know, you still can, because He hasn't left yet. The same Spirit of God that was moving in the 1st century and guiding those disciples and directing them in the fields of ministry that they had is among us today. And God expects you and me to work with him intelligently, deliberately, in a strategic fashion. He is indeed the captain on the ground. It is his harvest. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it would do best for you and I just to do exactly what he says. God knows what he's doing. Now I want to prove this to you in just one more passage of Scripture. And then we'll, this, this message will move very quickly from this point. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Now please don't be afraid. I'm not going to try to articulate all the grand, grand truths of Romans 9 through 11. It will not do that to us tonight. Suffice it to say, when we talk about God knows what He's doing, God's in control, the theological word that we would use to describe that is, God is Sovereign. Now, I know that you went through not long ago some of the attributes of God. I had a chance to be in one or two of those and was uh, greatly blessed by them. And I'm sure sovereignty was probably one of them. Uh, What does that mean? Well, when we talk about a king who is a sovereign, it means that he controls a region. He is sovereign over that region. He is the controller over that region. Now, the people will only be benefited by a king's sovereignty if that sovereignty is used in two ways. With wisdom and with mercy. In Romans chapter 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul goes through incredible effort to prove that God's sovereignty has been used in perfect wisdom and mercy. Without those two things, there's no real benefit to sovereignty, is there? Sovereignty's sovereignty's benefit is in when the one who has it, the control, uses it with great wisdom and with great mercy. The Apostle Paul's words in Romans 9-11 through echo the heart of God. And we read in chapter 9, in verse number 2, that Paul says, I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. These words are expressing God's sovereignty displayed in incredible mercy. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now again, this is echoing the heart, the sentiment of God. God longed for these Israelites, these stubborn Israelites who would not believe to be saved. All day long, the Bible says, God has stretched out His hands to an unwilling people. That's the heart of God. That is sovereignty benefiting people through mercy. Now there's something else the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11. And look at verse number 14. The Bible says, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Now Paul says, I would desire a heavenly wisdom to use any means to lead some to salvation. Now this is echoing the wisdom of God in the use of His sovereignty. God, we know, the Bible says in two very specific locations, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says that He will have all men to be saved. This is the desire. This is the heart of God. Now, a sovereign God who desires that will then use wisdom to accompany the desired mercy that He wants to give. How did He do that? Well, that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 demonstrate. When God chose a progenitor to Christ, that is, Abraham, of course, uh, from Him, from His bowels, came salvation, Jesus Christ. God, when He was choosing the line of Christ, chose Isaac over Ishmael. Not for salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with being in the line of Christ and being a progenitor of He who would bring eternal life. God chose Jacob over Esau. Now, why did God do that? Well, the answer is actually found in the Bible, so that helps us out a lot. Look at uh, verse number 16 of chapter 9. The Bible says in in Romans uh, 9, verse 16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The Bible says that God set a stumbling stone. And uh, these individuals who came along and hit this stone and looked down at this stone and saw that uh, this is the way of salvation, if they looked down at this stone, it would read simply, Not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Not by the blood, not, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but by God. If they looked down at the stone, it would say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that was perfectly demonstrated in the fact of how God chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. In other words... Could a God as a sovereign choose to save an elite group of people who were stronger, who were more intelligent, who were firstborns? Could God do that? Certainly He could have. He's sovereign, is He not? But He used His sovereignty as an act of mercy, demonstrating it in the very beginnings of gospel preaching of Abraham through the very selections of Isaac and Jacob. So that nobody could come to this stone and say, I don't qualify. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a great thing? That is God's sovereignty. God is in control and using it wisely. Let's talk about one more thing. And I know we're breezing through this. I don't intend to uh, try to describe everything in this passage. But let's look at the, uh, the situation with Pharaoh. Notice verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now that verse declares to us that what happened in Egypt actually had strategy behind it. Are you with me? Okay. In other words, when God did that, he knew what he was doing. That there was a point to it. The Bible says, did God set Israel up so that they should fall? God forbid. That's not the reasoning of God. But that through the fall of Israel, the riches of the world might be brought to the Gentiles so that when the Gentiles are received, it makes the Jews jealous and they want to be grafted back in so that the whole world is blessed. All throughout this you had the same reasoning. The idea that yes, God is in control and He has used that sovereign control to uh, give so much mercy in the way that He wisely conducted His affairs. Here we have the children of Israel. Seven years of drought in Egypt. Egypt has been raised up by God, the Bible says. The greatest nation in the world. Israel is about to be split out of that place of Egypt, and God destroys Pharaoh in such a dramatic way, such an incredible way, that by the time the children of Israel get to the promised land, people are already talking about what happened. Why did God do that? Verse 17, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That's what this, this whole passage, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Yes, it is about the sovereignty of God, but it is about a sovereign God using infinite wisdom and deliberately He will meddle with the minds of kings to get the Gospel out. Isn't that what that says? He hardened Pharaoh's heart to get the Gospel out. He raised Egypt up so he could destroy it in such a grand way that it would get the Gospel out. He, he, all these different things that God does, the way that He chose the Israelites, the way that He used them, and then the way that He turned them away and chose the Gentiles and all this. Paul gets to the very end of all this and he is just amazed at what God has done. And at the very end of it, look at this wonderful verse, chapter 11, verse number 33. Exclamation points are firing in this verse. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Now let me paraphrase that last verse. Who's smarter than God? You know, I'm not smarter than God. Are you? Paul says, he he looks at all this, what he just discussed in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he sees the hand of God. He sees in every little detail the choosing of Isaac, the choosing of Jacob, the way that he lifted up Pharaoh, the way that he treated Israel, everything that he did, God in His perfect sovereignty was demonstrating His wisdom and His mercy to bring as many to salvation as possibly could be. And Paul says, oh, this is amazing. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. Who can measure it? Now, I went through all of that simply to make this point. God knows what he's doing. (laughs) I'm telling you, folks, listen. God is not baffled by COVID-19. God's not distressed. He's He's not chewing his fingernails down to the quick. He's not knitting his eyebrows and plucking hairs out of his head. God knows exactly what's going on. God knows what this church should do. But sometimes, from the human perspective, it doesn't seem that way. You know, in that passage we read in Luke 10, the next verse is, uh, I send you forth as lambs among wolves, so make sure you don't bring a sword. Does that make sense? Well, that goes contrary to human logic. Don't bring, any, don't bring any money, don't bring an extra coat, don't bring an extra shoes. I want to give you one that's a little bit more... Uh, uh, Maybe uh, something I understand a little bit better is something that I would say is not a good idea. We have all these different languages in the world and uh, you know they're talking about language study and having to learn French now. Uh, We're in a country, the country of Uganda where there are 60 different languages. A country the size of Oregon that has 60 different languages. Imagine that, going from one gas station to the next in Oregon and they're speaking a different language. It would be very difficult. I've always thought, wouldn't it be better to have everybody all in the same place speaking the same language? You know, there's this theory out there about the the, the days of Peleg where the earth used to be one continent and then it started breaking up. Now, I'm not here to prove or disprove that, but uh, that would be a good idea, I think. (laughs) Whose idea was it anyway to break up these languages? Now, you know the answer, don't you? It's found in Genesis chapter 11. God did it. Did you know that the breaking up of the languages is not part of the problem, it's actually part of the solution? God looks down in Genesis chapter 11, He sees the people are joined together, He sees their independent spirit, He sees their self-confidence, He says this will never work. Never work for what? For the permeation of the gospel from a sovereign God who exercises His sovereignty in mercy and in wisdom. He says the best circumstance for these people, for them to be saved, is to change their languages, confound them, and send them out to the four corners of the world. That's Genesis 11. What's Genesis 12? The first missionary is called. Abraham, pack your bags. You're my first missionary. And the Bible says you'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth. In just a few chapters, it's all the nations, but at that point, it's just the families. And I'm going to show you how smart God is. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is an amazing little truth found in that uh, song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Now look at verse number 8. And we're winding down now. Deuteronomy 32.8 says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. Okay, well that's talking about Genesis 11. When He separated the sons of Adam. Watch carefully. He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. The Bible says, God limited. He set the boundaries. Now that can mean two things. It may mean one of two or it may mean both. It can mean geographically, but it can also mean population. God limited the extent of the population as it corresponded to the number of the missionaries He had available. The sons of Abraham. Isn't that amazing? There is a counterpart in the New Testament. To that verse found in Acts 17. It says the exact same thing. Except it's now an application to the New Testament church. Isabel Kuhn said this. I believe in every generation. God has called enough men and women. To reach all the yet unreached tribes. Of the world. It is not God who doesn't call. It is man who will not respond. Our God is so wise. Everything. Think about the placement of His birth. The Bible says Jesus came to this earth in the fullness of time. You know what that means? At just the right time. Why? The Roman government roads everywhere. It is a perfect setting for the gospel to explode in the first century. What am I saying? God knows what He's doing even when it doesn't seem like He does. And the best thing for you and me to do is just obey. Now let's close in Luke 10. Let's close this up in Luke 10. Look with me at verse number 2. Again, Jesus is dealing with the problem of a great harvest, but uh, not enough laborers. There There were places that Jesus wanted to go, couldn't get there, and He didn't have enough men to go there for Him. And Jesus is going to give us a solution to that problem. Now, I remind us today before I read this, there are still today some 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. There's no laborer there among them. What's the what's, what's solution? What can you and I do here at Adelphi Calvary Baptist Church? Well, here's what I'm going to suggest for me and for you. I think we should listen very closely to what Jesus says. And even if it doesn't make sense, I say we do it. You with me on that one? Yeah. I, I, that's my suggestion. I think if we just listen real closely, whatever he says, we just say, okay, let's do that. Verse 2 says, This therefore say it said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore. Now He even tells you what to pray for. Because remember what the problem is. There are places where there is a harvest but not laborers. The harvest is great. The laborers are few. I've only got 70 of you guys. I've got to send you out in twos. So i only got 35 groups. Here's the solution. Pray for those fields where there is no labor that the Spirit of God will send them out. Now, I got to ask myself the same question you have to ask yourself. How much time do I spend praying for fields where there are no laborers? And if the answer is not very much, I have a problem. You know what my problem is? I think I'm smarter than God. If you don't spend time praying for laborers to go out into the harvest field, do you know what your problem is? It's the same one that I have. You think you're smarter than God. God said, this is what I want you to do. Pray that the Lord will send forth laborers into his harvest field. Now, I know that seems simple. I know it seems like, is that really the answer? I don't know that we have to understand that. I've always been confounded by Psalm 2 when God says to His Son, ask me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Jesus has to ask, the Son of God who gave His life on the cross and paid the atonement for my sins has to ask His Father for the the uttermost parts of the earth. Ask me and I will give thee. Why should He have to do that? I don't know the answer to that. If you do, please let me know. I'd like to hear that. I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that. But if God says it, I believe that'll work. I think we should do that. I often think of a missions conference like a, a, a locomotive, a steam locomotive. And you know, the way a steam locomotive works is you, you put some coal in the firebox and the firebox heats up the water in the boiler. And the, the boiler will come under amazing tension from the steam that's caused from the, that water being heated and eventually you have to release the steam. Now that's what a missions conference is. All the preaching and the flags and the talk. It's like throwing coal in the firebox, right? We will get this train of gospel advance moving, right? But the... There are two choices when you are releasing this steam that you can do. You can send the steam to the whistle. How many of you have ever seen those old westerns where they pull that string and the steam just comes pouring out of the top of that train and it's quite impressive and it makes a lot of noise? You can send the steam, number one, to the whistle, or number two, you can send it to the pistons. Now, if you send it to the whistle, it'll make a lot of noise but it won't go anywhere. But if you send it to the Pistons, the train will move. I think it would be good for us in missions conference to say, God, do something real in our lives that changes us, that changes our prayer strategy and makes us more effective. That makes us more strategic. Spirit of God, I want to be on the same page with you. I don't want to be aloof. You are working. you know what you're doing. We're not just stabbing around in the dark and try to throw a track out uh, to a, a person every other day or, or what have you. There's more to it than that. that God wants to work. God wants me to know what's going on in the world. I want to be a part of that. When we do that, the train begins to move. For how many years? Has the locomotive of American missions been making a lot of noise and virtually going nowhere? Because as pastor said, the concept often is that uh, the church is an ATM. We get our money, we get here, and and, and here we go. Thank you so much for the money. But we need more than that. We need God's people to go. Every one of you is called to go, even if it's just across the street. That's a call to go, amen? (laughs) And we can do that. If we will take what God does in our heart and use it to move that locomotive to the pistons of prayer, the pistons of soul winning, the pistons of giving, God will bless. I want to challenge the church to consider a more aggressive, more engaged prayer ministry for the unreached people groups of the world. Why are there still 7,000 people groups that have not been reached? Well, I think we just heard, didn't we? The Lord said, pray ye therefore that the Lord will send laborers. So if they're not being sent, probably that's at least part of the problem. Let's begin actively engaging. I'm going to bring tomorrow or Friday uh, small prayer cards of the top 100 unreached people groups in the world. And I'm going to ask you to adopt them. I'm going to ask this church to adopt the top 100 unreached people groups and to begin praying, Lord, Send forth laborers into this field. And friend, in doing so, you will be working hand in hand with the Spirit of God.